0: Well, as we continue to worship, as we dig into the Word, can I just thank you for being here today? And can I thank you, honestly, from the bottom of my heart, for giving God the glory due His name? It is so beautiful to be able to come into a place like this, sing songs like that, and I think that as we come into 1 Samuel 4, that is exactly where God wants your heart. Because this is a challenging passage. We're in the middle of a chapter where God's people have departed so far from him that when they find themselves in the midst of battle, they ask themselves, why has God defeated us? And in that moment, when they could have said, because we bailed out on God, instead they say, somebody go get the box, as we saw last week. And what happens is the Israelites bring the Ark of the Covenant out of Shiloh, Into battle, and it's captured by the Philistines. And that is where our story picks up today. We find ourselves in Shiloh waiting for news from the battlefront. In Shiloh, a place which has been the center of worship since the days of Joshua. And that that word, Shiloh, that city appears 32 times in the Old Testament. But this is the last time that we will be in Shiloh in the book of 1 Samuel. A place that has been the center of worship will never be the center of worship again. In fact, years later, God actually tells the prophet Jeremiah to point to this very passage when he tells the people, if you don't worship me the right way, if you don't come back to me, you will end up like Shiloh. Because between Samuel's time and Jeremiah's, not only was it not the center of worship, but it had been destroyed. So what went wrong? Well, we can answer that question by digging back into chapter 4. So if you look at 1 Samuel 4, we're picking up with verse 12 tonight. And as we do that, sometimes you'll see in the Bible, when you're reading or studying a narrative, that like the punchline of the story comes right at the end. Like, that's the key thought. And in fact, in our passage today, that key thought is actually repeated twice. So listen for that as I read this. Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day, that's about a 20-mile run, and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now when he came, there was Eli, sitting on a seat by the wayside, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, What happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark, the ark of God, has been captured. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat Backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. Now, his daughter in law, Phinehas' wife, was with child, due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father in law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her, probably trying to help, said to her, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then, now this is our punchline, this is our key verse. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father in law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Okay, deep breath. With no pun intended toward Eli, guys, this is a heavy passage. There is really no silver lining, no good news. This is like all downhill. Everything that we've seen coming for four chapters that have been wrong with Hophni, with Phineas, with the people, with Eli, with their worship, has finally meant the moment where God has said enough is enough. And he deals with the wickedness of the people. But here's what I want you to notice. Because in those key verses, this name Ichabod becomes very important. Because this passage is heavy in another way. In fact, that name, Ichabod, actually comes from a Hebrew word, kavod. Now, this is a great word, because if you don't know this about the Hebrew language, before they could write it down, everything had to be spoken, repeated, memorized, and then repeated back from generation to generation. So there is a ton of onomatopoeia in that language to help them remember those things. So kavod is a word that means heavy Or weighty. And when they speak it, it has that sound. It's not like, kavod. (laughs) It's kavod. And what that means is, think about gold, for example. You put gold on the scale. If it's heavy, if it's weighty, that is glorious. That is a good thing. That is worthy. That is valuable. And so this word comes to be used to mean glory and to describe the glory of God. Because the glory of God outweighs everything else. In the entire universe. Kavod. Now this woman, after everything else that has happened, when she bears a son on her own deathbed, she adds one consonant and one vowel and names him I-Kavod. Ichabod. A name that we hear usually with Ichabod Crane, right? (laughs) But what that extra letter does is negates it. Now it means... No glory. There is no glory. You see, as Neil mentioned, the people believed that because the Ark of the Covenant was gone, the glory was gone. Now we know that the Ark of the Covenant is important. God asked that to be made. God used that. In fact, some of the things they did sound familiar because they brought the Ark to battle and shouted really loud. Well, that's what God told them to do at Jericho, and the walls fell down. But God did not tell them to do that this time. And so we know that God has used the ark to bring himself more glory. He has put his glory on the ark, but he is not contained by it. And now, it's gone. But here's what we have to realize. It's not that God's glory has departed. It's that we depart from God's glory. Right? God is still very much alive. He's still very much with them. He's very much with us. God is everywhere and his glory is always with them. The problem is not that the glory departed. It's that we depart from his glory. So as we look at this heavy passage tonight, what I want is for us to pull out solutions. To try to find three solutions because really the solution then becomes not how do we get the glory back, but how do we return to God's glory And the first solution, believe it or not, actually comes from Eli. If you look at those first couple of verses, what we can do is we can tremble at the weight of God's glory. When we realize how his glory outweighs everything else, that can make us tremble. You see, Eli, it says that he was sitting by the wayside, watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. Now, Some translations actually change that to say that it trembled with anxiety. Guys, anxiety does not even begin to describe what Eli is feeling in this moment. But as I read this, as I thought about this, this is strange to me because in chapter 2, he heard a dire prophecy about deaths in his own family and he didn't tremble. In chapter 3, he was given a reminder of that prophecy from the mouth of a child named Samuel and he didn't tremble. Now, now, As he sits wondering about the ark at 98 years old, finally he's trembling. And I don't know how much we want to like psychoanalyze Eli, but it struck me because in this moment, his sons are already dead. The ark is already gone and he doesn't even know he only has minutes left when he finally starts to tremble. And so it just got me thinking, and maybe we just ask ourselves these questions. Like, how bad does it have to get? How deep do I have to go into some compromise, some corruption, some, some sin that misses the mark of God's perfect standard that I'm giving into? How much does it have to hurt me or people around me before I finally begin to tremble? Or maybe to ask it another way, what makes you tremble. Because you see, trembling can be a good thing. There are places in the scripture that, that describe how we tremble at God's glory when we recognize how holy, how pure, how mighty, how powerful, and how forgiving and merciful that God is. It's the kind of thing that makes us fall to our knees. There are other places that talk about trembling at his word when we see the standard that it sets before us. When we see the grace that he wants to give us. When we see the strength that he wants to give us. And it kind of puts everything else into this stark contrast and this reality of what God is doing. But I don't know about you, a lot of times there are other things that, like if, if you ask me in conversation in the hallway, I'll tell you, oh yeah, those don't weigh as much as God's glory. But in a moment, they sure feel heavy. It was interesting, this, uh, this past week, a few of my friends invited me to go serve at City Gospel Mission with them, which is always so much fun, just to, one, serve with other guys, but also just to meet the guys and the families that come in there to eat. And so, um, this particular Monday night, uh, there was also one of our volunteers who was leading a devotional afterwards. And so, you know, we were kind of bumming around, it's like, hey, you want to head in there and maybe check it out? Some of them hadn't been in there for a devotional before, yeah, sure, let's do that. So we come into the room, he had just started, I find a place about halfway up, kind of sit over on one side, and he starts talking about prayer. He starts talking about how we can use prayer to confess things to God, to repent and and turn away from things that would make us depart from his glory. And as he was talking, man, he was so courageous, he was so bold, he shared a couple of his own things, like in the last two weeks kind of stuff, that he had gotten on his knees with God about and repented. And as I sat there listening to him, I thought, "Man, this is so good for everybody else here, right? Like, this, I bet they need to do that. Probably some of them. Yeah. Thank you for laughing because it's not a good, it's not a good line of thinking, right? Like I'm sitting over here, like I'm outside observer. This isn't for me. I'm just taking notes, right? Well, but the longer I sat there. Thank you, Heavenly Father. He does not let me stay in that place. He starts tapping on my heart. Hey, wait a minute. Did you hear that thing he just said? Because one of the things he was talking about was how stuff that we've overcome tries to creep back in. And so maybe it's not where it was, but am I tilting that direction? Is that a moment to get back on my knees and to tremble and say, God, I don't even want to get close to that. And so we actually went around the room and prayed a little bit. It, It isn't always like that. You know, but guys are calling out, you know, God, forgive me for lust, for using pornography, for using drugs. God, forgive me for anger and for fear and for worry. You know, it struck me as I was thinking about it, because fear can be a big one for me, that there are times where I say, well, I I want to trust God. When I think about his glory and how heavy that is, the scales absolutely tip in God's direction. And yet, what if... People knew my darkest thoughts? Or, or what if I lost something I really loved or someone I really loved? Or what if the future doesn't go the way that I am hoping? And the more I focus on the things on this side of the scale, it feels like they begin to outweigh God's glory. I'm no longer trembling at His presence, His word, or His goodness, I'm trembling at my fear. So, I don't know what that might be for you. you know, what are the things that, like, this is what I want to believe, and I see God in all of his cavode, but there's something in my life that seems to be tipping the scales? What makes you tremble? And can we exchange that to tremble at the weight of God's glory? Because that's really the first solution. Because when that happens, then the second solution begins to make more sense because we can also cry out for a return to God's glory. In fact, you see in this passage, it says that when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. They made a noise of outcry. Now, this verb literally means they all screamed really loud. Like, this was bad for business. This is the worst thing they could imagine, and so everybody's going crazy. But what's unique about this word is that oftentimes in the Bible, that word, cried out, is coupled with the idea of repentance. So if repentance is the idea that God is here, but in some spiritual sense, in some physical sense, with some compromise, I have departed from God in another direction. Repentance literally means turning around and turning back to God. And so they're all all over the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, using this Hebrew word. You see this rhythm of like disobedience. God allows the consequences of that disobedience. The people cry out. They say, God, we were wrong. Rescue us. And then there is deliverance. And so what's interesting about this passage is that in the midst of all of this, it's like they're almost just starting to get what they should have figured out a long time ago. You know, how does it get this far before anyone realizes how bad it is? And yet, I think that's such a challenge for our own hearts. Because as we read something like this, as you read the first four chapters of First Samuel, it's like, obviously, Hophni and Phinehas are a mess, Right? Obviously, Eli is not doing that good dad thing or that good boss thing. Like, well, here's Samuel, here's Hannah. What a good examples. I mean, that's that's what I want to be like, and probably am most of the time. Well, I think, right? It's so easy to dismiss these things because they're so obvious, and yet to step back and like do this self check. Like, okay, maybe I don't think that I'm quite the Hophni and Phinehas, but are there places? where I'm beginning to to depart from God's glory, that I want to cry out for a return to him. Because what happens next then with Eli is he kind of bears the brunt of this entire thing. In verse uh, 17 and 18, it describes how he was sitting on the seat by the gate, which would have looked something like this. So it's, it's not even much of a seat. And some people actually think that when it says his heart was trembling, he may have had a heart attack in this moment. When he hears they lost the battle, Hophni's dead, Phineas is dead, and the ark is gone, was more than he could bear at 98, and that was it. There's a moment of like all bad news, but it's important for us to notice in this. This moment was not a surprise. Like, God warned them very carefully about what happened when they corrupted their worship. What happened when they compromised and departed from his glory. And he was very specific about Eli's family. And so what we have in this moment is a picture of God's justice. I was having a conversation with a friend a couple of weeks ago, just trying to figure out some of this stuff. Like, because I don't know about you, but when I read this, like, that's intense, right? Like, the air is heavy in here when you read this kind of stuff. And my immediately thought is like, okay, so 1 Samuel 4, how do I go about not ending up like Hophni, Phinehas, and Eli, right? And so I'm sitting with a friend trying to figure this out. And and one question is, if that's me, wait, 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 give me one more chance, right? And yet we've seen, they got the one more chance and the one more chance. And now God says, ultimately... If you reject me, I have to deal with evil. Well, so as I sat with my friend, the next thing he said then was, well, then how is this really good of God if he let it go on that long? And so I think part of what we're seeing here is it is a picture of God's justice, but it is also a picture of God's patience. That ultimately his desire is to give us the opportunity to turn back to him, to cry out for a return to his glory. And so on some practical level, it starts to feel like, well, like, how far is too far gone? Like, when when is it too late, right? And that feels like it's always a dangerous question. because, like, what answer am I looking for? Is that so I can like, well, if that's the line, I'll just just get a little bit closer. You you said this is when it's too late? Okay, just a little bit closer, (laughs) right? That's not the idea. But I want this to challenge you a little bit to think about God's grace and forgiveness for yourself, maybe from a different perspective. There's a, a, a man I was reading about who actually was in the Navy, but through certain circumstances kind of got kicked out of his Navy position, lost that position. But on his travels, he had unfortunately seen how valuable human trafficking could be. And so he got into essentially the human trafficking industry and became very profitable. And along the way, he became a Christ follower. Like, he had a bunch of really bad stuff happen to him all at once. And he went seeking for, like, where are the answers to this? Where do I find hope? Who do I reach out to? Who can I trust? And he believed that the answer was God and that he could find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And what was so strange as I was reading about his story is, like, after that, he continued in human trafficking— and for years, he tried to reconcile these two things together. Like, maybe if I'm just really nice to people that I traffic. Okay. Maybe if I talk to the other people I work with about faith, and, and I help them trust in Christ too. Like, I know maybe it's not ideal, and maybe it isn't perfect, and I, but he had a really hard time letting go because the money was really good. But as he tells his own story... He continued to grow in his faith, and God kept working on him on that thing. It kept eating away at his heart that what he was doing wasn't just kind of different. It was wrong. And so he came to a moment where he repented of even that, and not only did he quit the trafficking industry, but he became instrumental in having it outlawed in the country where he grew up. Now, there's points in that story where if you tell me about this guy, I say, hey, you want to talk about Too Far Gone? Let me talk to you about a human trafficker. can you imagine something worse? And yet, we hear these stories where God does miraculous change in people's hearts. I I believe that there were moments that Hophni, Phineas, they could have turned around, but they didn't. And that story I just shared with you, if you haven't heard that before, that man's name was John Newton. And after giving up that human trafficking, slave trade, He wrote Amazing Grace. And one of my favorite quotes I think I've ever heard anybody say comes from him. He says, I'm not what I wish I was. I'm not who I hope I will be. But by Amazing Grace, I'm not who I was. See, all of us are somewhere on that journey. I don't know if you're at the beginning of that journey, if maybe you're in a place like John Newton was, where it's like, I've put my trust in Christ, and I know that I'm forgiven, past, present, future, because His grace is amazing, but there's just this thing that makes me depart from God's glory. It just seems to weigh heavier, and I can't quite release it. But I believe in a passage like this, God would call us back. God would say, cry out for a return. So maybe you've never been involved in human trafficking. But I promise you there are people here tonight, and you may be one of them, who wrestle with wondering if they are really forgiven. If that thing was too far. And if God could really forgive them. You know, sometimes we look at the world around us and we get kind of a different attitude. We say, well, I know I'm forgiven, but Kanye West? Mm, We'll see. Listen, we don't know people's hearts. (laughs) But God wants to look at our own hearts. And he wants to talk to us. And I can tell you, there are places in the Bible where you see people go much further than you ever have. Both as followers of Christ and before that, who find forgiveness. In fact, in Jeremiah 26, he references this exact passage. God actually gives Jeremiah these words, and i 'll just summarize this for you, but he basically says, perhaps everyone will listen and turn from his evil way, that I may relent if you will not listen to me, then I will make this house like Shiloh right, so you see the warning, but don 't miss this first line that god 's point is that perhaps everyone will repent that 's what he 's longing for. in fact, a few chapters earlier in chapter eighteen. God gives a similar message with an incredible promise. God says, "Whenever I have declared destruction on a nation and they repent, I will relent." I mean that's Nineveh, right? That's what happens in the book of Jonah. God tells them they're going to be destroyed. They say, "Hey, we think God's right about what we've done." They repent. God forgives them. Mercy is God's character. That's what he longs for. That's what they missed in Shiloh, and that's why today you cannot go visit Shiloh. Well, you can, but now it's just an excavation. Everything at Shiloh is digging for artifacts. There is no center of worship. There is no town. There is no marketplace. All that's left are ruins. And yet, I mean, I'll be honest with you. When I started looking at this passage, I was like, where do you even go with this? Then, by God's grace, I stumbled onto Jeremiah 26, where it's like, well, Jeremiah used it to talk about turning back to God, so let's do that. That this place, Shiloh, becomes our reminder then of a call to repentance and a call to worship. But those two that we've mentioned, Nineveh, Shiloh, those are cities. Talk to me about individuals. Because God says the very same thing to the individual person. And one of my favorite verses is Isaiah 55, 7. It says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Abundantly pardon. You know what that means? If you're sitting here tonight... And there's something on your heart or on your mind where you know that you've been in compromise. And we hit these things. We're, We're like, our compromise becomes so normal to us, we forget that we compromised. And then we stop even realizing that it is a compromise or that it counts. And God says, even in those places, forsake that. Leave it behind. Get rid of it. Return to the Lord our God and he will abundantly pardon. That means like, even more forgiveness than you need is available to you. Because that's how much God cares. In fact, I won't go into the whole thing in Isaiah 55, but if you hear people talk about how God's ways are higher than our ways, it is immediately after this. Like, if you think I can't forgive the wicked, if you think I can't forgive the unrighteous, if you think that there are people that are too far gone, let me just say, my ways are higher than your ways, I can abundantly pardon. Like, that is God's message to our hearts. That the reason he includes something as heavy and painful as 1 Samuel 4 is because we get a chance to learn from it and to say, how do I cry out for a return to God's glory? see, that, I think, is what Phineas' wife missed when she named her child. That we have a chance to see God's glory in Shiloh. Now, of course, not in the actual city. I just told you it's gone. (laughs) But this is what she missed. See, because the trembling, that's good. Crying out, that's good. Now, return to him. Call for deliverance. Ask to be saved. Ask for forgiveness. But instead, she starts naming Ichabod's. And she says, well, God must not care anymore. God must not be here anymore. God must not be involved anymore. The glory is gone. And look, guys, whether it is negative circumstances that happen to us, Or whether it is things I've done that are causing my pain. One of our temptations is to look at those things and say, well, God must be too mad at me. Well, God must have bailed out. Well, maybe God doesn't care. Well, maybe God left. Well, maybe I'm on my own. Ichabod, 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 Ichabod. No glory here. Just me and the mess I've made. Or just me and the mess that other people have made. But no glory I just encourage you, don't waste time naming Ichabod's. Even for her, this could be a moment of saying, I realize what has gone wrong. What we need is to get back to the kavod of the one true God. Because we have a chance to see God's glory in Shiloh. Now let's take that just a little bit deeper. Because I told you that the word Shiloh appears 32 times in the Old Testament. Well, it's 32 times referencing this city. But there's actually one time that the word Shiloh refers to a person. And it's actually the first time the word Shiloh ever appears in the Bible. Back in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. 9 and 10. It says this, of Judah. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? Okay, so we're talking about the lion of Judah, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. So Shiloh is a him? And Shiloh is the lion of Judah? And the scepter will not depart. You're telling me Shiloh is the king. So I read this, and I think, it's Jesus. But let me double check, because maybe I'm just getting excited, you know, and I'm always looking for Jesus on every page, because we saw a couple months ago in Luke how he went through the whole Bible with his friends and showed them how it's all about him. Could this be one? So I actually dug into some Hebrew texts, some of the Hebrew scholars before Jesus was even born, when they were studying Messiah. And there are multiples, but I'll just give you this one. This is from the Talmud in Sanhedrin 98b. I know you have a copy on your shelf at home. No, I read this online. So <laughs> Rabbi Johanan said, the world was created for the sake of the Messiah. So what is his name? And the school of Rabbi Sheila said, Shiloh. For it is written until Shiloh comes. For centuries before Jesus was born, people knew that this meant the Messiah. Because the word Shiloh, it's the same word where we get shalom, it means peace, but it can also be translated the one whose right it is, which is what it means here. That there is one person whose right it is to receive peace. Glory from us. And that is Jesus. You see, in just the same way that the city of Shiloh was meant to be a call to repentance and a call to worship, the person of Jesus, the Messiah, the Shiloh, calls us to repentance and worship. So let me suggest a key takeaway for us today. Return to God's glory in Shiloh. Not the city, but the person. Instead of naming Ichabod's. Return to God's glory in Shiloh instead of naming Ichabod's. Because Jesus is worthy of all of the glory that we sang to him tonight. All of the praise that we've given him because he was slain for every single thing that you have ever thought or said or done or could do or will do, every single thing that you thought might mean that you're too far gone, he died for so that you can be forgiven, so that you can return to his glory and give him glory forever. His glory outweighs all of your failure. His kavod is the weight of our worship. So as we close tonight, I just want to give you a moment just to pray quietly to yourself. And as you do that, we're going to listen to the song, Amazing Grace. And if you have some compromise, if there's something in your life that you know, God, this isn't a thing that pleases you, would you just give that to him now? Return to his glory, ask for his amazing grace in the person of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's for the first time in a long time. Maybe it's the first time ever. But let's do that now. Let's pray. And let me just pray over you from Psalm 139 and from 2 Peter 3. Search us, O God. Know our hearts. Try us and know our anxieties. See if there is any wicked way in us. And lead us in the way everlasting that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Thank you for being here this evening. We'll see you next week.